Jeff Salzman here. This week, I'd like to share a wonderful conversation I had with Amathanasanti, who's a Buddhist teacher in the Ajahn Chah Fortist tradition. She's in Colorado Springs now, and who is also deeply influenced by Ken Wilber and Integral Theory. Amma was traveling through Boulder a couple weeks ago, and she stopped by for a spot of tea and a chat about her unusual life and her really astonishing teachings. I and mean, she's a celibate who teaches on sex and a mendicant who teaches on money. And it's a truly bracing um, set of teachings and insights. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ama Thanasanti. So Ama Thanasanti, Welcome. Here you are sitting in our studio, and it's lovely to see you and meet you for the first time. So welcome. Thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to meeting you as well. Likewise, yes. Yeah. yeah. So you have an extraordinary story, an extraordinary life that you've chosen and created and offer. And I thought we might just start there, if you could give us a little bit of, of how you came to be who you are today. I know, know you, a California girl at the beginning, and went off to the, in the Buddhist path, and uh, you're a mendicant nun, and it's so, fill us in. So I was uh, wandered into a class on religions of India at UC Santa Cruz when I was 17, and it was a kind of like a somebody lighting a match and throwing it on a bonfire that had been doused with kerosene. You know, even though I was just in a lecture theater, and within the first week, I had a really strong sense that the spiritual life was going to be central. And in a month, I had a vision of being a nun. And coming from a Jewish family, we don't have nuns. So there was no cultural context that made sense of this at all. And from that time on, there was a really clear um, conviction or aspiration to give my life to awakening from the time I was 17. So it took many years for me to finish university, to graduate with a degree in biology, to pay off my student loans. And then I ended up wandering on a pilgrimage to Southeast Asia to meet some of the meditation masters that I'd heard about and to explore if this really was something that I wanted to do. And what age are you at this point? So by the time I left on the pilgrimage, I was 25. Okay. So it was just a couple months before my 26th birthday. And there you are in Southeast Asia looking for these teachers that you had heard about. Exactly. So I left with a one-way ticket. I said goodbye to my boyfriend. I gave away all my belongings and my lovely cat, and I bought a one-way ticket to go. Wow. And so you knew you were going. I knew I was going and I knew I had been going for a long time. But, you know, the man that I was living with, we were very, very close. And the closer it came to leaving, the closer we got. And I kept on thinking, I'm nuts, really. I'm actually quite insane. What am I doing? But there was a voice, a deep voice of something that I needed to explore, that I wasn't going to settle. There was some intuition that I wouldn't actually settle unless I actually tried this out. Yeah. So Southeast Asia as a solitary, as a young woman in my 20s, was quite a journey. And it was the first time I'd been for that long a time away from family and friends and boyfriend. And it was very um, activating. And the more I stayed, the less I felt I understood. And so it was a very uh, challenging experience. Were you in uh, an ashram with one you moved around? How did you live? No, I was staying in guest house and, and, and going on a couple, I went on a couple of retreats and mm-hmm. traveling on my own and meeting up with people and traveling together with them. Right. And 
and very activating. Yes, it was very activating. And one of the things that happened when I was in India was I had a, I had a visa to go to a monastery and spend three months doing intensive meditation. And I knew this place was a very, very strong practice place. And at that point, I was experiencing so much restlessness and disorientation and um, agitation that I thought if I just went like this, it's going to be really difficult. So I went up to Dharamsala because for me, the mountains and the nature has always been a source of, of solace and a source of, of grounding. And I found somebody who seemed trustworthy and honorable and, we, and asked if he would be willing to join me up on a trip. So we went up just to have a couple days out in the mountains. We did. And on the way back, um, I encountered a bear. And the, so this, the, the bear attacked me. And, and that whole process of dealing with that and then the aftermath of that was really a very poignant um, recognition that our lives are just remarkably fragile. We never know from one minute to the next how or when we are going to die. Wow. So attacked by a bear in Nepal or India. In India. Yeah. And it sounds serious and recovery. And how did, what was the next? Um, it wasn't as serious as obviously it could be. You mm -hmm. know, I, I, my skull was left intact. I have quite a few scars on my head, but. Um, oh my goodness. Um, there was no puncture wound to my skull. So as far as, far as a bear goes, it was actually superficial wounds, but wow. there were, it, there was a number of lacerations and I needed rabies shots and tetanus shots and antibiotic shots and I need to be stitched up. And, and so there was a whole big, huge medical thing that happened after that, that yes. just took a lot of time and care. And you, but you stayed. I stayed and Brian and I stayed as travel companions for the entire time. I had, I had rabies injections in my stomach and then booster shots. And so we stayed and then we traveled. And then he went back to Pakistan and I went back to Nepal. And when I was going back to Nepal, I started getting another kind of sickness, which was, you know, also debilitating. So I was traveling on my own and not feeling very well. But after I started feeling a little bit better, I made my way to Thailand and to some of the monasteries that I'd heard about. And when I was in Northeast Thailand at the mother monastery or the foreign monastery of Ajahn Chah, the great forest meditation master, there was just a, a strong feeling of it was a juxtaposition of homecoming on one hand and also the the cultural um, way in which the the men were um, highly regarded and the women were in a position of supporting them that was very, very activating for my California conditioning. Interesting. So it was a juxtaposition of feeling completely at home and agitation where it was in that cauldron where I thought, okay, it's time. It's time for me to go forth. So it I wrote some letters to the monastery in England and I went back home to my family and friends and then left for England. And it, that was in 1987 that I arrived and 1989 that I arrived and in England, in England. Yeah. yeah. And then joined the nuns community there and stayed there for 20 years and then came back to the United States when some of the, the politics of what was going on in that community were, were, I didn't find conducive or things that I'd signed up for, and it didn't feel like I was wanting to be part of it at all. So you I was mean clear. Buddhist monks and nuns have politics? I'm afraid to say, Jeff, that Buddhist monks and oh. nuns have politics. Are you shocked? I am shocked and deeply saddened. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I'll tell you, human beings or something. You know, isn't it just? Yeah. Isn't it just? Yeah. So I came back to the States 
And I had been a nun at that point for 19 years and an alms mendicant. An alms mendicant. So let's stop there. That means I've, no money. That's right. It means that I don't have any direct way of 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 asking for money, earning a living, getting a check. You and, could have made some easier choices here. Let's face it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it depends which way you measure easy. <laughs> and how much you value easy, easy I guess. That's right. And, and, and what is of, uh, what's important? You know, so for me, when there was this like beeline for awakening, there was also along with that a lot of faith that the Buddha's instructions to live as a monastic was the most ideal conditions that were available for cultivating a mind that wakes up to its original nature. Yeah. And so with that comes a life of living entirely on faith in terms of there's no way to secure a living other than living on the free will donations of people who are wanting to offer. In real time. That's right. And so the, what that does, and part of the reason why it's so incredibly powerful, particularly in our contemporary day, is, is there's, I have not seen anything that puts the nose to the grindstone more carefully in terms of looking at the nature of desire and the way that it actually manifests in our minds and bodies. And because desire is the hub of where we get tangled up, then actually focusing on desire and seeing what causes it to get activated and being able to focus in a way where the desire component can release mm -hmm. has an enormous impact on the mind's ability to stay present with what's arising and to watch and see clearly what's actually going on here. Wow, beautifully said. And so it's not fashionable right now for alms mendicancy or renunciation or a life of simplicity, but in terms of the potency as a tool to use it for clarity, I have not seen anything that comes anywhere close. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't imagine what could. Yeah. 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 So it's an incredible, powerful tool. I mean, tool. it's just all day long. Exactly. Yeah. And it's about everything. About everything. Right. Love, sex. Um, food. Food. Where you can live, shelter, yes. accommodation. Yes. All of it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So I mentioned the love and sex part. So you're, of course, celibate. You're a nun. And yet you are writing a book or just finished uh, or in the process of writing a book on love and sex. And I've talked to you about that, and you and you have you know really brilliant, I, th I think, insights into this. And um, so, talk a little bit about that, if you would. So, one of the one of my lifelong journeys has been to understand these energies and to use them in the process of awakening, and which is not the languaging that comes through the tradition that I ordained into. The languaging that comes from the tradition that I attained into is mostly about restraint and not about using these energies, but about uh, transforming or uh, allowing them, these energies, not to overwhelm the mind so that one can access and, and cultivate other qualities of mind. Yes. My experience has been a long process of learning how these energies actually can be transformed and utilized for the heart opening and the mind opening into states of stuff that's really, really, really peaceful, very blissful, and very useful for practice. Hmm. 
And so because this has been such a big part of my own life and because it has been also accompanied by a significant amount of sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry to hear that. <laughs> and because I haven't had many conversations with people who've actually been through similar things that I have, yeah. I thought, well, you know, if this is going to be of support and of service to other people, then I will share my experiences and hope that that will also support them in their journey. Because, you know, one of the things that was very apparent to me at a certain point was that the whole instinct of desire for sexual intimacy often masks grades as the desire for sex, when in fact, what's actually happening is a desire for connection, a desire for wholeness, a desire for healing some of the uh, developmental wounds that were never mm -hmm. touched and addressed. Yeah. And so in that way, when I was reading the integral work, Ken, Ken's writings, mm -hmm. for me, there was this great big flash that was actually clearly describing why the power of insight by itself does not necessarily translate into some of these other domains. So, and I was observing it in myself and I was watching it happen in the people who I was living with in the monastery where there could be profound insight and deep, deep realization, but there could also be kind of like cracks in the foundation where this insight wasn't by itself healing them. And so direct practices or parallel practices or a framework that understands that for me was tremendously useful, both for having a frame for what I was going through, as well as making sense of some of the things that I was observing in the community and in the my brothers and sisters who I was living with in the monastery. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So this, this transformation of energies, not the idea of just controlling them and, and cultivating other sort of conditions of mind, but to use, like you were saying, the, the power of sex. We all know how powerful the sex is in love too, in that romantic way. It just, it rules a lot of people's lives, in many ways, all of our lives. And you're saying, much in the same way as, as, as with money, with the men, mendicant part, that not having that actually allows you to transmute or transform those energies into the energies of seeking wholeness. That's right. And one of the things that was a real surprise to me, because I felt that I you know, I was had been in relationships, I understood what sex was, I knew my own body, I knew what that whole energy was, and what it was like to engage in relationship with another. Yeah. So I did not <clears throat> see myself as being naive at all. Right. And what was very surprising to me is once I became a celibate, my understanding about sex and sexuality increased logarithmically. <laughs> it's not what anyone would normally assume. Because normally we associate knowledge with direct engagement. But what was happening was that because through non-engagement, through actually restraining the outflow of that energy, then what also happened with coupling that with meditation and the restraint that the rest of the life brought allowed the mind to become more clear, more focused, and more able to distill what was actually happening that I couldn't see before because there was too much dispersion. And so the capacity to track, to follow, to see and understand nuances, I was really surprised. It was a complete shock 
Interesting. That that one of the results of becoming celibate was so much more understanding of human sexuality. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's what you're working on. So that's, that's a book that I'm working on right now. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And I have taught retreats on it for women, and I've taught them with um, a very dear friend of mine, Sharon Beckman Brindley, who's an insight dialogue teacher and has been a clinical psychotherapist for 30 years. Uh-huh. And these retreats are powerful because we take the container of meditation to drop into a place of stillness so that there isn't the normal, ordinary dispersion. Yeah. And we use the insight dialogue as a way of bringing about the process of being engaged in conversation and in relationship with another to explore and inquire how these things are actually landing in us, residing in us. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's, hallelujah, that sounds beautiful. Yeah. So to, to sort of maybe touch back in with your story a bit, so you uh, come to America, and if I did the math right, we're talking 2007, 2008, something like that? 2009. Okay. Yeah. And so you're here now, and you're doing your work here? So and, I, I live in Colorado Springs, yep. and um, I travel and I teach, and I do things locally. I do things, a lot of things online. And my intention is is creating uh, a, a, an opportunity where the traditional teachings can be brought into our modern context. So a lot of my teaching is uh, traditional in terms of just bringing the classic teachings on meditation and the path, the Eightfold Path, and the components of the Eightfold Path so that we bring the the strength to the various different components that we need to allow our mind to be able to see clearly, to be able to yeah. go into depth. Just the good basic, as we say in football, the blocking and tackling. Right. The calisthenics. Okay. Of, of And these calisthenics give us the power to be able to have deep insight. Yeah. Okay. But what I also do is I also talk about the parallel practices that comes through in the integral teachings in terms of all lines, all quadrants in terms of not assuming that only cultivating the interior domain is necessarily going to translate into all of the other domains. And that if we are super gifted in one component of our introspection, that does not necessarily mean that other lines of intelligence automatically increase. But what is true? But we sure thought that for so many years. Yes, isn't that? And you know, and all the trouble we get in with teachers coming over here, or or even our own homegrown teachers, and yes, they do have a certain spiritual realization. That's right. But they, you know, the other lines haven't necessarily caught up. They're not there, so they're in trouble with their students and sex and money and, you know. And so one of the real gifts that I got from the integral frame was understanding the normalcy of all of this. (laughs) <laughs> and that there wasn't anything wrong per se with us or our way of practicing. It's just that we hadn't looked at all of the different quadrants to make sure that we were covering all the grounds. Yeah. So I teach in a way that speaks to all of the different quadrants and to making sure that we have lines of intelligence that are developing in many different areas. So Not- what, what do you uh, focus on in terms of the lines of development that you're working with with your students? I mean, you talk about meditation and, and so forth. So, you know, that sort of control of the mind. and It's not control of the mind. It's a settling of the mind so that we are able to observe the mind, mm-hmm. which is different. And so certainly there are times when we need to actually pause and make choices away from what's actually driving our minds. But what the kind of meditation that I teach is about learning how to use different frames of reference 
to be with what's arising so that we're not getting hijacked by it or uh, we're not absorbing into it. We're not losing ourselves in it. We're not identifying with it. We're not denying it. We're not rejecting mm-hmm. it. It's just staying with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what comes up for a lot of people is, is, is that this quality of observation illuminates psychological areas of development that have not been attended to. Mm-hmm. And so rather than just assume that the meditation is going to address it, then to take more active measures to address it in ways with, with, with parallel practices that are more designed to speak to those uh, places of wounding. In, in so doing, you're stepping out of the Buddhist lineage or out of the Buddhist stream I'm, into using psychothera- psychological practices. I am, I am incorporating parallel practices that are not in conflict with the yeah, Buddhist teachings yeah. in order to develop the human so that the human has the ability to realize the fruits that the practice is actually speaking yeah, to. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, you know, sort of right on schedule. You know, that's what we, you know, all, all of these lineages continue to grow and evolve and transform themselves because we learn more and we see more and we're able to incorporate more. So you're here and you're doing these teachings and you say you're doing sort of the basic Buddhist teaching and you're integrating it with practices from outside and you're doing the um, retreats for women. Not just for women. The Love, Sexuality, and Awakening Retreat is the only retreat that I do for women. Okay. Uh, all the other retreats that I do are for whoever would like to come. And so what are those like? And Well, the next, I have a virtual retreat that's going to be over Thanksgiving weekend, and that will be on uh, forgiveness and uh, gratitude. Mm-hmm. And then the New Year's retreat, which is a five-day residential retreat here in Colorado, it'll be in Loveland is going to be on working with the foundations of mindfulness. So if people are interested in clear meditation instructions, this is the teaching that the Buddha gave, which scholars for the past, I don't know how long, have been saying that if there is one thing to learn, it's this. And what is it again? This foundations of mindfulness. Hmm, There are the four foundations of mindfulness, and within it is is a a huge amount of, of meditation instruction, and frames of reference that help people support them in a path of awakening. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, one of the things which I don't know that anybody disputes is, is that one of the single best ways of developing to different stages of consciousness is through meditation. And these ancient teachings are superlative yeah. in their clarity and uh, holding a container that supports that. Yeah. So one of the things that's interesting to me about you, and I think to my listeners, is that, you know, you come through this Buddhist lineage and you find integral and you're sort of integrating. And um, you talked about that one of the things that you realize through integral and and using your teachings is our lines of development. And, you know, you want to have lines of more lines on lines, so to speak. Uh, One of the other great teachings of integral is evolution. And, you know, in my Buddhist training, of course, you, you learn about the endless wheel of suffering. There's not much evolution there. <laughs> I always think of it as maybe it's the endless spiral of suffering. Uh, but how do you see development? Um, how do you see Buddhism now, uh, Buddhism in the future? What are you doing in, that sort of brings, helps evolve the whole situation? I mean, how do you think about that? 
how I think about it depends on the state of conscious I'm in when I'm thinking. <laughs> so there isn't one thinking about it. There are many thinkings about it. And when I'm in the most expanded state that I have access to, what I see is, is that awareness pervades everything and pervades time and space and is not separate from our internal experience and the way that it manifests in the world. There is a, uh, a sense of an, an indivisibility in awareness and the way that it's manifesting. And so my direct experience with that is that when I'm understanding that and manifesting that, then what I'm doing is in, in flow, in harmony with, with nature, with a capital N nature with a capital N, mm -hmm. the nature that shows us the nature of our own Buddha mind, that nature. Mm -hmm. In terms of dialing it down a few notches, in terms of the way that I experience the world and what's happening around us, you know, right now we're in a, a tremendous crisis of unprecedented magnitude and unprecedented consequence. And for me, one of the things about this which is exciting is that, as far as I can tell, the one thing that is going to make a difference is a shift in consciousness. And so anytime we have human beings that are moving into higher states of consciousness at a rapid rate, we have something very significant that's happening. Do you think we're seeing that? Sometimes I can say yes. Sometimes I can say no. Sometimes I don't know. But what I do know is, is that whether it is happening on a big scale or not, then what I think is imperative is, is that as many people as possible are in this process of waking up to the highest level of consciousness that they have access to, mm -hmm. and then moving to the next level of consciousness. Yeah. In terms of what I am interested in doing or offering is understanding just that, that the nature of the luminous mind is, is that it's radiant, it's pervasive, and it's all-inclusive. And that there isn't anything that separates out from the internal world of our interior domain into the relationships and into the world around us. Mm -hmm. And so I'm endeavoring to create structure and process and culture and community that understands and practices and supports that. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm endeavoring. Yeah. yeah, right on. Do you have any experience with opinion about the uh, teaching that Ken has done, particularly in, in his uh, recent book, uh, Integral Spirituality, about the first, second, and third person of God. And one of the ways that spirit can be understood is through second person and actually related to, that there is a personal aspect to divinity that sees us and loves us and created us. And, you know, it's, of course— anathema in Buddhism to personify, uh, to have a God, you know, but uh, what do you, how do you think about that? Or how do you see that? Well, you know, I have read that book and I am not remembering that I, what, what was in it, <laughs> but what I know about when I go, for me, my easy access is in nature. And yeah. I live, you know, part of the reason why I'm in Colorado Springs is because I live right next to the garden of the gods. And that's a power spot. And it has been for many thousands of years, the, Native American Indians, all the various different nations used to meet there and have ceremony there. And it's within 10 minutes walking from my doorstep. 
So it's really easy. I yeah, go it's, all the time. For those of you who don't know, the Garden of the Gods is a, an amazing natural uh, rock formation slash canyon. It's just magnificent. It's spectacular. But more even than the physical beauty of the site, which is striking, is the power of the energy there, which is what I love. Wow. And so in that space, you know, for me, what I experience is of being embraced. And so the embracing, and so there, it's, it's like awareness drops into a place where awareness is unbounded. But that experience of unbounded awareness is not a feeling of being solitary and alone. It's a feeling of being embraced and embraced by everything. It's a feeling of profound and deep intimacy with everything. And so in that sense, there's a sense of being loved by, in addition to loving. But one of the qualities is, is, is that the, the sense of self is so uh, diffuse that it doesn't stand out as I am loving and I am being loved. What is more present is just the characteristic and the quality of love itself, where there's this easy flow and movement of both being receptacle and generator of without the eye as being a kind of magnet or a, a collector of the love. It's just love is moving, and there's definitely a feeling of being suffused by it, but also being a source from which it moves. Well. So in that sense, I would agree that there's a feeling of, that there's, that one is not at all separate from being loved. One is in the middle of a field of being loved. Yeah. I'm feeling it now. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. So how can people connect with you? Do you have a website? Yeah. So awakeningtruth.org is a website. And the website has um, different, a whole huge library of talks and things that I've done. Dharmaseed.org is now the new place where people can get a hold of my Dharma talks. and Dharmaseed? Dharmaseed.org. Uh -huh. And uh, if you're local in Colorado, then I would highly encourage you to sign up for Meditate with the Monk in the Garden of the Gods. It's a meetup group because that has local events that I'm doing. Yeah. And then there's a newsletter, but you can sign up from the newsletter from the website. Yeah. Yeah. And I have listened to a number of your talks, and they're beautiful. I would encourage uh, everybody to, to have a listen to Ama. What is it about the talks that you found interesting? There's a transmissive aspect. I can sort of bathe in a subtle energy that you are, I think, a master of, I suspect, uh, in my experience. And so at that point, I'm not sure I remember what you say, because I hear so many Buddhist teachings and I have my Buddhist history myself. Uh, but I feel a space open up and a smile arise. That's pretty good, right? <laughs> For me, it's, it's I like to know because hearing how you are impacted is a different way of being connected to your experience yeah. than just hearing like a one word summary of right. it. Yeah. yeah, so thank you. You bet. Yeah. My pleasure. So in closing, you're talking here to people who have been lit up by Integral, and actually a lot of Buddhist practitioners in, in of various schools in, in this audience. Uh, is there anything that you're just moved to share uh, for people who are in that particular demographic in our category? 
I too feel lit up by integral and I too feel that, you know, integral has a frame of reference that is imperative in our world right now. It's so I'm right with you, you know, <laughs> you know, I've got my flag and I'm waving it too. Yeah. And I would encourage everybody who is really passionate about integral not to lose sight of the power of meditation because there isn't anything more powerful than meditation in terms of developing higher states of consciousness. Yeah. And so if you are passionate about integral and you understand the importance of development and you understand that we have to move through different stages in order to come to a place of being able to see things in a pluralistic way, then don't lose sight of meditation as an, a significant and powerful tool to help you do what you see is imperative to be done. Wow. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah. Ama Tanasanti, uh, thank you again for joining us today. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.